If you would, take your Bibles. Please turn to about the center of, the, of your Bible to Psalm 8. We'll be looking at Psalm 8 this morning. And if uh, you don't have a copy of your own Bible with you this morning, you can find a pew Bible close to you, and that'll be on page uh, 450 and 451 as we look at Psalm 8. Now, um, I, I, I don't know why I'm telling you this, except that it's true. I love movie trailers. And movie trailers, you know, sometimes they're better than the movies, I'm just telling you. And I love movie trailers, and it's always interesting how movie trailers will kind of lay out expectations that you may not quite uh, grasp and understand. And and I'm sorry AJ had to do Children's Church this morning because I was going to talk about one of his favorite movies, which is Star Wars. Or or should we say Carolyn Star War? It's Star War, right? So anyway, and when, a few years ago when the Star Wars trailer came out for The Force Awakens, there was a line... Uh, that forces you, I know that's a little pun there, okay, it forces you, sorry, uh, into just desiring to want to see the movie. And the, and the line is, is there's a voice and there's these characters we don't know yet. We haven't been introduced to these characters yet in Star Wars lore, you know. And so there's a voice that, that asks the question, it says, who are you? Just like that. And the answer comes back, I'm no one. And you're like, who is this person? Who are these people? I want to know. I want to know about this. Well, what's interesting is, is when you get to the movie, Maz, the kind of uh, CGI character that asked the question, who are you? Ask it to another character in the movie that's not the main character, Ray. And so you're sitting there going, well, that really confuses me. I really thought she was asking her. But here's the thing. She could have really been asking Ray. Because what's interesting about all that is, is that Ray still, after now two movies, still doesn't know who she is. And neither do her fans. And her fans really want to know. If you type in who is Ray on the internet, everybody's questioning who she is and where she's from and all this stuff. And this is all fiction. You've got to understand. It's really interesting, isn't it? Well, here's the thing. Have you ever been asked the question, who are you? Who are you? If you were asked that question, what would your answer be? What is your true identity? This text speaks to this this morning. Let's go and look at Psalm 8 and read the Word of God. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Githith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
This is the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. The beauty of it captures our heart. I pray as as we read this and this poetry pulls us in, Lord, that we would see beyond the poetry to you and what you would have for us this morning. Father, by your spirit now, open our minds and hearts to reflect on you and to gaze upon your wonder and beauty, your majesty. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Since the fall of mankind and the separation from God that occurred as a result, man has stumbled along in his search for identity. The psalm speaks uh, to this with the question, what is, what is man? It asks that question, what is man? And this psalm seeks to answer um, this question uh, in terms of celebrating the majesty and the grace of God and revealing Him as Creator and pointing to what He has done and how He relates to us and therefore our identity and who we are. So we're going to unpack it today very simply with two major thoughts. And our first thought is going to be the centrality of God, the majestic Creator. We're going to look at that. We're going to unpack that. We're going to kind of think about it, imagine that, and, and see where we come to. And then we're going to finally look at the grace of God, His loving relationship with us. How does His majesty point us to our identity? So first of all, the centrality of God. The majestic creator located in Washington, D.C. is the Library of Congress, which is the largest library in the world. It it was established in 1800 and it it contains a collection of more than 168 million items. This includes more than 39 million cataloged books and other print materials and 470 languages, more than 27 million manuscripts and the largest rare book collection in North America. It is the largest collection of legal materials, films, maps, sheet music, and sound recordings. However vast this library may be, and it's vast, if you were to place all that information between two bookends, all of it, along with all the other of the largest libraries in the world, it would significantly pale in comparison to the glory of of the bookends of the psalm. What are the bookends of the psalm? Look at the text, verses 1 and 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Or maybe you could hear it this way. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. These bookends celebrate the majesty of our Creator God and all that He has done. This is meant to bring us into clear focus and wonder of our identity and that His majesty is the foundation of that identity. Our understanding of royal majesty in our day and time is limited mostly to reading or perhaps Disney princesses and their princes. Or maybe even you're watching of the crown, watching Queen Elizabeth as a young lady, as a young queen. Uh, This is a step away uh, from uh, human understanding human majesty that, that draws us away even further from royal majesty of heavenly thought. 
John Calvin said this. He said, This exclamation of David implies that when all the faculties of human mind are exerted to the utmost in meditation on this subject, they yet come far short of it. But let's try anyway. Let's see if we can grapple with this. The way we can grapple with this is to look at the text and contemplate it. So let's contemplate first the irony here. Do you catch the irony? David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who was David? He was king. King of Israel. And so his majesty looks up into heaven. He looks up to the Lord and he says, you are the majestic one. You are the one that is high. You are the one that has uh, over unfathomable splendor and glory and majesty. You are the true king over all creation, over all space, over all time. You are our creator, God, Yahweh. And so Yahweh, who is the I Am, His name is majestic as it reveals His sovereign power, His authority, His grandeur. It reveals His victories, His judgment, His law, His rule over creation. And it points us to His greatness and splendor and quality of character that is our Creator God. Now look at how David draws us closer in. He he gives us that irony. I'm the king, but I'm saying that you're the majestic one. So he's pointing us there, but then he brings us to to Yahweh's majesty in a different way. Look at verse 1 at the end of verse 1. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. And then he continues in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You still the the enemy and the avenger. As His glory is above the heavens, so He says there in the text, above the heavens, it should draw our minds to the angelic beings that exist somehow beyond the heavens that we see above us. Maybe you remember the angelic beings in the throne room of His Majesty, the King of the universe, the King of God. Isaiah is drawn in a vision there and he sees God and the train of His robe is filling the place. And there's angels and cherubim and these creatures flying around and the angels are saying, saying the words, Holy, holy, holy is the God, is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You can almost feel the glory there. The majesty there is there in His presence. But even as the angels speak, they point to another place where you can see His glory and His majesty. They say the whole earth is full of His glory. And so what it tells us here is is that the earth in its form in its lushness, in its beauty, in its grandeur, as you look at the Grand Canyon, as you look at the ocean, as you look at the the jungles, as you look at the desert, as you look everywhere, and as you see the creatures, the sea creatures that we're able to see now, um, the little bugs that drive you nuts, um, the butterflies, everything, all of it, people, everything, points to His majesty. Even um, when the dissenting cries of his enemies are voiced, they are silenced by mouths of babes and infants. Now those are interesting words, aren't they? Perhaps as Sam was reading this morning from uh, Matthew 21, you caught that Jesus quoted this psalm. 
Remember, as Sam read that passage, he's in there, he's doing the work of God, and then, and then the children are crying out to him, saying, saying uh, you know, giving praise to Jesus, and the leaders won't have anything to do with it. You need to shut these children up. They're worshiping you. Of course they were. It's interesting. It's as though Jesus is saying and quoting this verse, their voices must cry out. One commentator noted, the sound of the children is concrete evidence that God's fortress is on earth. The continuity of the human race is God's way of assuring the ultimate glorification of an earth populated with a new humanity. The sound of opposition is silenced by the babbling and the chatter of children. Now I want you to think about that just for a moment in the culture that we live in. Isn't it interesting that, in fact, most of humanity's time that we've been since the fall in history, we've made a decision to silence the cry of children, whether it be through post-abortion killings or whether it be through abortive killings today. I just think it's interesting, don't you? To hear that the voices of little ones proclaim the glory of God. And yet we try to silence them. It's interesting. Regardless of how these enemies may assert themselves, they cannot overcome the evidence of God's glory on earth. They cannot overcome the evidence that is there above the heavens. It is everywhere. It is established and no enemy can overcome His kingdom. So as David has drawn our attention to seeing the angelic host before the majestic God of the Scriptures, and then pointing us to the earth where we see creation before us, now he moves, as he moves to the center of the psalm, Yahweh's majesty is arrested in his heart through the night sky. Look at the text. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... Back when I was a student teaching in college in North Carolina, I went to school in South Carolina, but my student teaching time was in North Carolina in the um, Charlotte area, a little bit north of Charlotte, kind of out in the boonies there. Um, I lived with this teacher who rented a house, and he was working on it at the same time, and um, I got to live with him, and it was kind of fun, two bachelors living in this old house, you know. And he was a coach, and so he would be gone a lot. And so at night, lots of times, it was in the wintertime, so it would get dark early, and at night in February, I would walk out into the field. He had this old crazy dog that would, it was kind of annoying, but a fun dog at the same time. Um, and uh, we would walk out in the field together, and I would look up at the stars. And you know how it is in winter. It, it's, it's clear. You can see more. And especially when you're out away from the city lights. How incredibly beautiful it is. As I would walk out there, Rich Mullins would be kind of running around in my head. His song, Step, sometimes by step, he, he has these words, he says this. Sometimes the night was beautiful. Sometimes the sky was so far away. Sometimes it seemed to stoop so close. You could touch it, but your heart would break. And I wonder why. Why would your heart break? Well, here's the thing. If I have to tell you, you wouldn't understand the glory of God. You see, David understood. 
And the night sky, uh, maybe like nothing else, is the unfathomable display of the glory of God. I want you to think about it just for a minute. We're on one planet among nine in our solar system. We're revolving around the sun, a star, at 67,000 miles per hour. It makes you kind of want to hold on, doesn't it? This star is estimated to be one of 200 to 400 billion within our own galaxy. Now, our galaxy is one of estimated billions that exist or did exist in the cosmos so that the stars in space are really completely uncountable from our vantage point. And yet, David points us to the fact that it is completely the work of God's fingers. I want you to think about that. Let that soak in just a moment. What do you do with your fingers? You may make a sandwich. You might play the piano, pluck a guitar. You might even pick your nose driving down the highway. I see a lot of people doing that as I look over at them. You might do that. But I can guarantee you, you never, ever, ever have even come close to working an asteroid from your fingers. Much less all the galaxies, billions upon billions of them. Worlds without end. Amen and amen. So let me ask you a question. When you're out of the city lights and you can really see and you can look up into the sky, into the stars, and you see it and you almost feel like you can fall in or again, as Rich says, if you touch it, your heart will break because it's so glorious. Do you feel small? Do you feel small? And yet at the same time, do you sense the glory, the almightiness, the unfathomable majesty of God? You see, this is the context here. This is the context and the foundation from which the understanding of the question is going to be understood. What is the question again? What is man? What is man in light of all this? What is man in light of all the splendor and glory and creation that we see? God's majesty is the foundation of that question. And so now let us move to the second point where we get the answer. The grace of God has loving relation to us. Look at verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So again, what is mankind in light of all this? If you look at the beginning of, of verse 5 and follow here, you'll see that we are creatures. It tells us that we are made a little lower than heavenly beings. That we're not angels. So we're not angelic beings, we're a little lower. And David tells us, though, that we're not animals either. We're above the animals. So Darwin has it wrong. I don't care how you slice it. I'll choose God over Darwin every time. Okay? Darwin has it wrong. Don't let people tell you you're animals. It's not true. I'm telling you, it's a lie. We are different. Why is that? We'll see it unfold here. We're actually given dominion over the animals. 
Now, notice that this is given. It's, it's not earned. So humans have a responsibility over creation, over the animals of the field, of the sky, of the sea. This responsibility is under God. And here we see David's mind going back to Genesis. And this is what we have to understand. We're not animals. We're not angelic beings. So what are we? Genesis 1, or, or in Genesis chapter 1, it says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. and Let them have dominion. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are made in the image of God with dignity and glory. And we are given rule and responsibility. And it's almost as if, and I'll, it may be in a quote here coming up, but my mind's already going past it. It's, it's almost here as though he's not seeing us in the state that we're in. Because as we read this, as we think about it, as we look at it, we see that that's not necessarily true of us, is it? What do I mean by that? What, is, what am I talking about? What happened? Something caused us to be confused and to doubt who we really are and who we truly are and who we were truly meant to be. And that's why we're always kind of searching, as, as the old book said, if you remember the old book from the 80s, searching for significance. We're searching for identity. We're searching for significance. What is it? The turn to sin. In our rebellion and, and dive into sin, we turned our backs on the Lord and we fell into the fall and the curse. Perhaps, and the only thing I can do is speculate here, but I, I think it's a high, high probability that this would be the case, that perhaps if we had never fallen, we wouldn't feel so small. If there had been no sin, perhaps we would know better of who we are. Perhaps we would know and understood and fathomed our true identity as the image bearers of God. So we're not animals. We're not angelic beings. We're image bearers of God. So why? What is man that he is so mindful of us? Why does he care for us especially in our fallenness? Think of the mess that we are. The mess that is mankind in his failure in ruling. Do we rule this world well? I would say not. What about failures in relating to one another, in treating one another with justice and mercy and love? All you have to do is think about human trafficking. All you have to do is think about abortion. And you realize, no, we failed at that. I mean, think of it just a minute. Think, you know, I was meditating on this this morning as I was reading through this. You know, abortion is killing the image of God. Isn't that interesting? Destroying the Imago Dei. We are a failure also in our worship. Yet, and this was what I was thinking about here just a moment ago, man's significance is not to be limited to his existence before sin came into the world. Man is still crowned with glory and made in his image. It seems as if the psalmist is unaware of the fall. Being concerned not with man's simple condition, but with God's fatherly love and care for mankind. But how could that be? Because 
We understand the truth of the world, and we know that David understood the truth of the world that he lived in. He was aware. He was a sinner too. He knew sinners around him. So what gives? What is this about? Why does it seem like the psalmist has just forgotten the fall? Because it's a psalm of hope that points to the future. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and look at verse 5. Listen to the inspired Word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you cared for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subject to him and subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. So do you see the hope that the psalmist points to? You see, Jesus is who He's speaking of here. Jesus was, for a little while, made lower than the angels. He he took on humanity. He participated with humanity. And then Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of His perfect responsiveness to the Father. He was the perfect man. And He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being as Hebrews 1.3 points out if you were to go back a chapter. Jesus the God-man has suffered death For man and thus has received greater glory and authority. The Father has subjected everything to the Son. And all things must submit to His messianic rule. So what we see here, what the author of Hebrews is telling us is, is that Jesus came and He fully represented man the way Adam should have. And so therefore, His death and His dying in His perfect state... He takes the place of us in judgment so that we may have eternal life and hope of the reality of these things unfolding before us in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Jesus came to do what mankind could not do. God became a man in order to reclaim all that Adam had lost. Jesus came as the God-man to restore our broken relationships, the broken creation, and most importantly, our broken relationship with God the Father. I want you to look at it this way. The incarnation. Now think with me here. The incarnation is the final and absolute proof of the dignity of man. Notice that God did not offer a salvation plan to the angelic beings, did He, that, that, that rebelled against Him and followed Satan. 
There's no plan of salvation for them. But there is a plan of salvation for man. We are people of dignity. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. In our fallenness, we have worth. We see Jesus. He is what we were meant to be. His care, His love, His tears, His kindness, His justice, His sacrificial love. And Jesus says in the book of Revelation, Behold, I make all things new. So what He's doing is He is undoing all the failures and all the brokenness. He is putting His enemies under His feet and He is restoring all things as they should be. And so the question for us is this. Who are you? What the Bible lays out to us is very important. First of all, we are made in the image of God. The Imago Dei. We have dignity and worth because we are made in His image. Now made in His image, we are also fallen creatures. Sinful creatures. You know, people, people have this idea, you know, sin's kind of disappeared today. And if you, if you pay attention to any news reports or anything like that, it's very interesting how, you know, the world's trying to establish its own rules of morality. The world is trying to set up its way of thinking continually all the time that is directly opposed nine times out of ten to the way that God has laid it out for us. And yet, all of the people of the earth are still made in His image. And so the Scripture lays it out for us that we are either in Adam or we're in Christ. Our identity is either in Adam or it's in Christ. If we're in Adam, we're lost. We're away from Him. We're separated from Him. But He has given us Christ Jesus. And so if we are in Christ Jesus, if we have believed in Him and we believe the truth that He came and lived a perfect life, that He's gave His life as a sacrifice for ours, if we believe in those things, then we're in Christ. And His glory screams out to us, here's the plan of salvation. Here's the thing that's going to fix it all. Here it is that's going to fix the relationships that are broken, the abortion that happens, the human trafficking that happens, the wars that occur, the man's inhumanity to man... The true king, when he rules, will rule in peace. Now, he's already begun that. And we as his people in the church are to live in that way. So the first question I have for you as we kind of apply this is, is do you believe in Christ? Who are you? Or are you an item? If you are here today, and you haven't trusted in Christ, look at the majesty, look at the glory, look at the psalmist. David had no clue as to the vastness of the universe, did he? None. Not like we do. And he still pointed and said, look at it. It brings majesty to God. He says, look at each other. It brings majesty to God. Look at the Grand Canyon. It's majesty to God. The angels are singing its praise, bringing majesty to God. Now, the second question I have for you, if you are in Christ, is then how do you live out your identity? Again, 
even in Christ, we'll still struggle. We're still sinners, and we still struggle with who, who am I? What am I about? What is all this about? What is God's will? I think the, the, the writer of Hebrew tells us, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. What is, what is God's will for us? To be like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you can go out and turn over tables in the temple. It doesn't mean you can go out and heal people. But he's given us a way to look at him and to, to model his, his life by, by living the way he would have us live. So, so here's a question. How do you treat people? How do you treat people um, of other genders? Do you treat them with respect and honor? That they so deserve because they're made in the image of God. How do you treat people of other races? Do you treat them with respect and honor? Because they're made in the image of God. How do you treat unbelievers? As the enemy? Jesus calls them an enemy, so that's fair. But, that, but he never treated people in an unkind way, did he? Except maybe the religious people. <laughs> Which is interesting, isn't it? How do you treat other people? Do you treat them as they are made in the image of God? How do you live your life in your family? That's where it's really hard. That's where the rubber meets the road. We fail and we fail and we fail. But Jesus would say, look at me. Look at me. Look at me and receive my grace. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is the Lord in all the earth. Would you see that today? Would you recognize that not only in others, but even your own self? Is really that might be the hardest place in some, in some ways to notice it. You have worth. He has come to give His life for you. Marvel and the love of God. And your dignity. Let us pray.